Welcome to the Successful Aging Podcast, brought to you by the Lecom Institute for Successful Aging, an organization providing a full continuum of care and services for older adults throughout northwestern Pennsylvania. Well, welcome everybody to Westminster. Those of you who are guests of Westminster, thank you for coming. My lovely residents, thank you also for coming. Uh, we got some great vendors in the back that can help with all sorts of different uh, areas that you might need. But the main event here is our two presenters today, Kimberly Folk from Crestman Erty Ferguson Law Firm and Jennifer Patton Rudolph of the Successful Aging of Northwestern Pennsylvania. They're gonna talk about elder law, things I don't know about. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, what was our other topic? Oh my gosh. All the things. All the things, right. All the things. <laughs> <laughs> Financial planning, things you might need or don't need. But anyhow, welcome, grab something to eat and enjoy. So I'm Kimberly Folk. I'm an elder law attorney in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and I own a law firm called Cressman Erty Ferguson. And we handle a wide variety of elder law matters all across the aging spectrum. And Westminster was kind enough to ask us to join you today to talk about some things we think might be of interest to you. I brought Jennifer Patton Rudolph with me. So Jennifer is our elder care coordinator and a social worker, and she runs our sister company, Successful Aging of Northwest PA. Jen's goal is to help adults age in place successfully. So she's going to talk to you a little bit about different options for care needs as we age and some expectations on costs. And then I'll jump back in and talk a little bit about estate planning and Medicaid planning and a little bit of asset protection. And then hopefully we'll be able to answer any questions that you might have. Sound good? Yep. All right, Jennifer. Thank you, Kim. Hi, everyone. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to see you all today. Um, what a beautiful place this is. It's my first time to be here. Um, it's awfully lovely, and I think they they seem like they do a lot of good things here for the residents. So I'm really happy to be here, and I think uh, uh, the uh, administrator to allow us to be here today. So thank you so much. Again, I'm Jennifer Patton Rudolph, and I am a kind of a hybrid, if you will. I do a little bit of paralegal work, and I also am an elder care coordinator for our sister company, Successful Aging. A lot of times, we have our clients that come into the office, and they're looking for ways to just try to help make plans for the future. Um, I like to tell our clients that what I want to do more than anything is to help you design roadmaps that help you with your aging needs um, and kind of finding where you might fit in comparison to where your care needs are. So what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna walk you through what I would do if I had a client that was coming in that was pretty independent and talk about how you plan for where you are now, 
but then also what are going to be some options for the future and how those cost of care correlate with those care needs because it's very important and a goal of ours at our at our law firm is to make sure that our clients assets don't outlive their care needs so early planning is really very crucial to allow that to start to really build the strongest roadmap that you can. Um, so I'm gonna start here with independent living. So we have clients that will come to us and they'll say that, you know, I am just, I don't wanna plow snow. I don't wanna shovel snow anymore. I don't want to, have to mow my lawn and you know things of that nature. I, I don't want to live completely alone, maybe. I want to be where there are other people around so I'm not completely isolated, but I still want my independence. So we would start talking about independent senior living. And there's lots of different options that are out there. Um, but since we're here today, I wanted to kind of focus on um, Parkside at Westminster and kind of what is the way that you can pay for your care or pay for that level of care. Um, with any kind of independent living, you're going to, that's going to be a private pay. There are not any public benefits or Medicare or Medicaid that help you pay for that. Um, so when we have clients come in and start looking at what their asset structure is and then looking at what their care needs might be at, um, we help them to look at those costs and kind of do a cost analysis based off of their assets to make sure that they're being supported for the remainder of their lives for where their care needs are. Now, this one is personal care assistance at home. So when we have clients that are starting to need some assistance with what is called activities of daily living, and there are two categories of activities of daily living. There are those traditional ADLs, sometimes you hear people call them. Um, again, activities of daily living where you might need some help with bathing or dressing or um, you know, meal prep or you need assistance with um, bill pay or medication management. That falls into a different category called the instrumental activities of daily living. Um, but those are important when you start to need a little additional help, a little bit more hands-on help. Sometimes personal care at home, it could be an option. Um, now with that, there are two different ways to pay for that type of care. You have your private pay. Um, there are some companies and agencies that will just take private pay. And there are some other agencies that will accept medical assistance or Medicaid under the waiver program, which is the PDA or CHC waivers. That is where you must qualify for that public benefit, both medically and financially in order for the state to help you pay for some care at home. Another really good benefit that you can look into if you're in a position where you're looking for personal care at home is VA aid and attendance. 
Um, we've had several of our clients that have come to us um, that were veterans or wives of veterans that did qualify for some of the additional services and financial support through aid and attendance through the VA. So we always tell our clients, if you have any connection with the VA, look into it because you might have benefits there that you didn't know you might have qualified for. And it could be really helpful with trying to create your plan and your roadmap. The next interesting concept, and this is something a little bit newer, um, is shared living. So with shared living, I always like to think of the Golden Girls, <laughs> where you have three, well, they had four ladies, but <laughs> in this case, you have three residents that are in a private residence, and they share care um, within that private residence. So it works because you have to have three individuals that might either pay privately or qualify for medical assistance through that CHC waiver, which will help you pay for the cost of care. You have to be qualified um, for that by needing at least eight hours of care a day. So the state would qualify a person who was going to be applying for that type of um, level of care through the CHC waiver, they would qualify you for the amount of hours. And if you qualify for eight hours, then you are able to utilize this as an option because eight hours times three is 24-7 care. So that's kind of how you have that 24-7 care support within that private residence. So we have some clients that utilize um, some of the resources in our area, our, our care cottage shared living arrangements, um, and, and work it works out well for them if they're at that level where the care support is appropriate. Next is the cost of personal care or assisted living. Now with personal care or assisted living, that is going to be private pay. There is not, unfortunately, our state hasn't quite recognized the importance of getting support for our aging adults for the level of assisted living when you need a little bit more help, again, with those ADLs. You need to have at least two or more of those activities of daily living in which you need some assistance to help you qualify for, those, for that level of care on a medical level and a care need level. Um, other than private pay, you also have VA aid and attendance that can help you sometimes pay for that level of care as well. And um, I know that there are a, a few facilities that are under the LECOM umbrella um, that are personal care. You have the Regency, um, and I believe there is one in Corning as well. Now, this is where a lot of times we have a lot of our clients come to us because they're at a position where they're needing way more assistance, maybe 
more of not just needing the assistance of one person, but they might need the assistance of two, or they need assistance with more than two of those ADLs, and they really need skilled nursing care. Before I came to work at Crespin Erty Ferguson Law Firm and to work with Successful Aging, I was a discharge planner at our local hospital. And so a lot of times when we have clients that come in to, to start asking questions because their loved one's going to have to go to a nursing home, I always think back to my days at Meville Medical Center when I was sitting bedside with a patient and starting to talk over what exactly that means financially, the implications of that. Um, so I'm going to share you with you the little story that I go through when um, I go back to the to my discharge planning days. Um, there are three ways that your care can be paid for at a skilled nursing home. First. There is Medicare. Now, not always do you qualify for Medicare to help you pay for a stay at a skilled nursing facility. Uh, first off, there are you have to meet the qualifications in order for Medicare to pay for any time at that at a skilled nursing facility. You would um, need to have an inpatient or an, an if you have traditional Medicare, an inpatient admission, or if you have a Medicare Advantage plan, then you can be in what's called observation and still get your Medicare benefits if the insurance company that is your Advantage plan authorizes it. Um, that is something that was always very challenging, the fact that I have Medicare I'm in a hospital and I should be able to go for a short period of time to a nursing home. That's not always the case. Inpatient versus observation is the way in which our hospital system categorizes a patient when they come to the hospital. Um, those are based off of Medicare guidelines that make the, hosp the hospitals then follow that and make the determination as to where a patient would land. If they would be in observation with just traditional Medicare, then you're not able to use those Medicare benefits to help pay for your care. But if you are an observation patient and you have tradition, you have an advantage plan, then you have to have the insurance company make that determination whether or not you can qualify. Um, another thing about Medicare to know is that you don't, Medicare won't pay for the entirety of your stay at a nursing home. Medicare will only pay for up to 100 days. And when I say up to 100 days, I mean up to 100 days. Um, there will, there is, it's very hard sometimes for people to go all the way to that 100 days. Um, Medicare has some guidelines and qualifications that make that a little tough for people to constantly meet that skilled level. Um, so I always wanted, I always felt so bad for um, patients and our clients that say, but I have 100 days. Well, you can't guarantee you're going to get those full 100 days when you go to a skilled facility. So something to remember is that Medicare is on, would pay only up to 100 days and that, that's that's it so if you needed to go and be in the facility longer then you're going to look at other op other options which is either privately paying for the cost of care 
Um, there are some VA benefits that are out there. Um, again, a lot of that has to do with service connection and you have to get a contract through the VA to help you pay for your stay. Um, and sometimes that can be a little bit hard. You also have to go to a VA um, facility. So there are some, some uh, guidelines and some qualifications for that. Um, but if you are not a veteran and don't qualify for any benefits, then other than paying privately, the other option that you have is applying for medical assistance. Medical assistance, as attorney folks going to talk to you about how you qualify for medical assistance, medical assistance is a means-tested public benefits program where you have to, again, qualify based off of your medical and care needs, as well as your financial needs. And so I'm going to turn it over to attorney folks so that she can start to get in um, to how exactly you qualify for public benefits to maybe help you meet the level of care that you may need. How about a quick round of applause for Jennifer? She'll be back to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Jen. So one of the things I want to talk to you about is Medicaid and how that pays for your long-term care. But there are a couple of other things that we should touch on in addition to that. So there's three things I think everybody needs to know as they age. Estate Planning 101. Everyone needs three basic estate planning documents, and we're going to talk about them. Complex estate planning and asset protection. It's right for some people. It's not right for everyone. And assets can be protected even in a crisis. So if you don't call me until after someone has already entered a nursing home, sometimes there are things we can still do, especially if you've got a spouse at home who still needs to be you know, taken care of as well. So let's break these down a little bit further. Everyone needs three basic estate planning documents, a last will and testament, a financial power of attorney, and a healthcare power of attorney. And they all do something slightly different, but that's a low cost contingency plan that can save your family some real headaches down the road. There are three ways you can own assets in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, or three you'll hear about the most. Solely owned, which means it's just in your name. Jointly owned, means you own it with another person or with a beneficiary designation. So if you have like an IRA, a 401k, or life insurance, you've probably named people who benefit from those things when you pass away. Your will, only governs solely owned assets that don't have a beneficiary designation. Those are the only assets that are subject to probate. Probate's that dirty word we use to talk about administering your estate when you pass away that everybody wants to avoid, but can be exceedingly helpful sometimes. So probate is what happens with your will when you pass away, and it dictates what we do with your solely owned assets. It also names an executor who's in charge of making those things happen. A healthcare power of attorney is a document that names agents 
who can make healthcare decisions for you in the event you become incapacitated some way in some way and can't make those decisions for yourself. Powers of attorney are only effective while you are alive. When you pass away, those powers die with you, so to speak, and then your will tells us what happens next. Your healthcare power of attorney can also have a living will incorporated into it. And a living will is an opportunity to make choices about how you want your end of life care handled so that the person who's in charge of making that so knows what your wishes are. The other document is what's called a financial power of attorney. A financial power of attorney is the key to success in protecting your assets in the event you go into a skilled nursing home. A power of attorney is inexpensive and solves a lot of problems. Sometimes people get concerned, well, it's a power of attorney. It's giving someone a very large grant of authority. Doesn't that mean they can steal my money? It never means that someone can steal your money. And in my experience, if you have bad actors who want to steal your money, they're not going to take the time to take you to a lawyer to get a power of attorney in place to do it. They're just going to take your money. Powers of attorney have very specific duties in the way they have to do things for you. You are actually improving the quality of things by implementing one and creating legal recourse when someone does something that they shouldn't. So if you don't have a financial power of attorney, a healthcare power of attorney, or a will, or if you have them, but maybe you haven't looked at them in 10 or 15 years, it's time to get some in place. This is the most beneficial thing you can do for your family to be proactive. Because what happens if you don't do these things and you don't have a power of attorney and you do become incapacitated in some way? You haven't nominated anyone to make healthcare decisions for you or to help you with your finances. Doing these things now voluntarily means you get to choose the people who help you. If you don't have a power of attorney and you become incapacitated in some way and you need assistance, your family will be left seeking guardianship over you. Guardianship is expensive, it's a little bit unpleasant, and there's a lot of court oversight. You go to court to do these things. You report to the court at least once a year. It is usually more than triple the expense of doing a will and power of attorney. It's also an involuntary process. Guardianship means we ask the court to remove some of your basic human rights. Nobody wants that. So it's better to be proactive than reactive, and that's a theme you'll hear throughout. Being proactive means get those estate planning documents into place and shore up the ship while you still can. Complex estate planning and asset protection, um, it's not right for everyone, but it can be right for some people. And what I mean by complex estate planning is an irrevocable trust. An irrevocable trust is just a vehicle or a tool that we can use to protect assets in the event you need long-term care down the road. Remember, proactive, not reactive. You'll hear me talk about the five-year look-back rule from time to time. Transfers of your assets to a trust are considered gifts if you apply for Medicaid to pay for your nursing home care. 
which means if you transfer assets into a trust and you apply for Medicaid within five years of doing that, you will be penalized most likely. The penalty being, even though you're otherwise eligible for the program, you have to privately pay for your care. What an irrevocable trust does is it shelters the assets within it. And if your lawyer's done their job right, it makes those assets so that they're just out of your reach, so that they don't count towards how much money you can have and qualify for the Medicaid program. They're also a really nice estate planning tool for second marriages. That's something we see more and more, second marriages with children from previous relationships. I can use myself as an example. I am my husband's second wife. We do not have children together. He has two children from his first marriage. He's also significantly older than I am. So statistically speaking, he will probably die before I do, which sounds really callous, but I'm telling you this for a very good reason. When he passes away, the majority of our assets we hold jointly between the two of us, which means ownership will just vest in me. There is nothing to stop me from redoing my will and disinheriting his children. Unless we've tied our assets up into a trust, which upon his death, 50% of that becomes money I can't move. So it prevents me from being able to disinherit his children if he should pass away before I do. It can be a nice tool, it can do a couple of different things. Not all assets are right to put into a trust. Your real estate can be a nice asset for a trust. Non-qualified investment accounts, so that would mean just your regular old investment accounts, not your IRAs or your 401ks. Sometimes we can put stocks or savings accounts and even life insurance into these. Just depends on how your assets are structured and what you're trying to accomplish. It's not right for everyone because it adds complexity to your estate plan. Not everybody wants that, and that's okay. But it's an option that if you're interested in it, you should at least get, to get an appointment with an attorney. Any elder law attorney would be able to do this for you or any good one and walk through it and see if maybe it is right for you. Now the real meat and potatoes. This is why people really want to hear me talk most of the time, and it's to talk about Medicaid. So Medicaid, as you heard Jennifer say, is a means-tested public benefits program. It is the public benefits program that helps us pay for our care needs. There are several different components. You will hear Medicaid long-term care. That is the portion of Medicaid that pays for your long-term care needs if you are in an institutionalized setting. There's also what's called the Medicaid waiver program, or you'll hear home and community-based services. It's just a form of Medicaid that can pay for caregivers at home to help you age in place. Eligibility requirements are pretty much identical but your income makes a big difference if we're talking about labor benefits or if we're talking about institutionalization. So the majority of what I'm gonna tell you leads to someone in a nursing home setting. Um, Pennsylvania is still unfortunately pretty pro-institutionalization at this point. So it'd be nice to get some legislators in and make waiver benefits a little easier to obtain so we could continue to age at home. There are three components to Medicaid we're going to talk about. Eligibility, gifting, 
and estate recovery. So we'll break those down a little bit further. Again, means tested. The state sets limits because it's a federal program run by states in individual counties by human beings who make mistakes sometimes. So it's not always the easiest process to go through. There are some wonderful people at LECOM who do help their residents through this though, so you'd be in good hands. But the state tells us how much money we can have and qualify for the Medicaid program. And I will try to be mindful of your time because left to my own devices, I'll talk to you all night about this. Um, if you have a spouse at home, that changes how much money you're allowed to have or your spouse can have. But they tell us how many countable resources we can have and qualify for the program. Your primary residence, one vehicle and prepaid burial reserves are what we call exempt. They don't count towards that limit of how much money you can have and qualify for the program. Well, exactly how much money can we have? For a single person, if your gross income is over about $2,700 a month, your resource limit is $2,400. Your countable resources have to be reduced below $2,400 to qualify for the Medicaid program. If your income is below that amount, your resource limit is $8,000. Now, if you're married, we have to create sort of a snapshot, a moment in time to look at your resources. And what we use is the day you go into a facility and we reasonably expect you're going to remain there for at least a while. And we look at all the assets you own on that day. And if you are a married person, whether you own things just in your name or jointly with your spouse, it is all on the table for eligibility purposes, except for those ones that are exempt. Your house, your car, your funeral. And if you have a spouse at home who has an employer-sponsored retirement account, that would also be exempt. So we take all those countable resources that a married couple has and we total them up and we divide that number by two. And if that number falls within that spectrum of 148,620 to 29,724, that's what's called your community spouse resource allowance. That's how much money your spouse at home can have or how many countable resources they can have and you can qualify for Medicaid. If when we total your assets up and divide it by two, you are above that cap, you come down, that's the cap. If we do that and you are below that minimum, you jump up to the minimum. And that combined with your resource limit for your spouse is how many countable resources you can have and qualify for the program. So that would be eligibility. Gifting. For Medicaid purposes, gifting has a very broad definition. It can mean a variety of things. You gave away an asset for less than fair market value. So you added your child's name to your deed or you gave them your car. Making assets joint is considered a gift. Um, unaccounted for funds. You can have up to $500 a month in the aggregate in unaccounted for funds before you start to get penalized for Medicaid purposes. This is where we run into what we like to call accidental gifts. People aren't giving money away, they're using it to support themselves, 
but you can't prove where the money went. So this is a common pitfall that we see, and I'll give you an example. Someone applies for Medicaid, and applying for Medicaid is basically like having a financial audit of the last five years of your life. You have to give the county assistance office a litany of documents, which include bank statements. So as they're combing through your bank statements, they see that once a week you went to the ATM and took 500 bucks out and bought your gas. That was your bingo money. Maybe you went out to supper. It was just the money you used to operate, but you did it every week. And there were four weeks in that month. You now have, unless you saved every receipt, $2,000 in unaccounted for funds that could cause you a penalty if you applied for Medicaid. The way we determine how you're penalized is the value of the gift divided by the average daily cost of nursing home care. That number changes every year. Right now, the way it works out is for about every $10,000 you give away, it's about 25 days of penalty. So giving away $2,000 and not necessarily giving it away, but that's how Medicaid will see it, not the end of the world. That's not going to be an enormous penalty, two or three days at most. But if you do that every month for the five years prior to your application for Medicaid, you're going to get penalized two or three days, 12 times a year. So it's easier. Your life will be easier if you need to apply for Medicaid if you don't operate in cash. Have points of sale. Use a debit card, write checks, things like that. You can avoid some of that accidental gifting. Estate recovery is that third component. So if you receive Medicaid to pay for your long-term care during your lifetime, when you pass away, Pennsylvania can place a lien against your estate and they can try and recoup some of that money they've paid out on your behalf. And where you see this usually become an issue is, you'll remember I said your house doesn't count towards how much money you can have and qualify, right? So if I own my home just in my name and I go into the nursing home and I use Medicaid to pay for my care, when I pass away, still owning that home just in my name and my children go through probate, they're going to end up owing money back to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They're going to end up probably selling my house and paying some of that money back to the state before they ever get to realize any benefit of that. So that one is a little more unpleasant. The nice thing is Pennsylvania is very specific compared to a lot of other states in what they can place a lien against. Uh, probate and revocable trusts are the big ones. So usually in my experience, I can tell you what I do for my clients. I can't speak for any other elder law attorneys. But ideally, we put you into a position where you don't have an estate when you pass away. You don't have to go through probate so that you don't have assets subject to estate recovery. So it can be avoided if we are proactive rather than reactive. Calling me in a crisis, not as advantageous to help your family, but being proactive in doing these things while we're younger and healthier and a little more cognitively intact is really, really beneficial for your family. I have thrown a litany of information to you that probably on its own, a lot of it doesn't make a lick of sense. So I'll try to connect some of the dots and show you how this works because it's a lot in a very short amount of time. So we'll talk about a married couple and then I'll show you a little bit with a single person too. And then Jen and I will be able to answer any questions that you might have. 
So Jim and Janet. Jim is 85 years old. He's been diagnosed with dementia and unfortunately is gonna have to go into the nursing home soon. His wife, Janet is 82, still lives at home. No real signs of cognitive decline and she's in pretty good health overall. As far as their assets, they each have an IRA. They have a checking and savings account. They own a house and they own a car. Jim's income, he gets about $1,800 a month in Social Security and about $500 a month in a pension, and Janet collects Social Security. An important thing to note here, Jim's gross income is less than $2,700 a month. That means his resource limit will be $8,000. That matters, I'll show you why. So how do we get Jim eligible for Medicaid? We're worried about Janet. She's younger, she's healthier. She's gonna live a little bit longer than him most likely. She needs those resources to last. So their total countable resources are $200,000. That means Janet's community spouse resource allowance is $100,000 and we know Jim is allowed to have 8,000. That means to get Jim eligible for Medicaid, we have to reduce their countable resources below $108,000. Well, how do we do that? We're going to fund an annuity for Janet's benefit. We're gonna take the money that's over-resourcing them and turn it into income for Janet so that it can help sustain her over the remainder of her life. And in order to do that, we're gonna to have to liquidate Jim's IRA. So we're gonna liquidate that IRA, withhold 20%, and we're gonna take that savings account and just combine all of that into the checking account. That's not a requirement, but it sure makes Janet's life easier, which is what we want. That means Jim's IRA was liquidated after we withheld the taxes. It's about $60,000 in cash. Janet's qualified retirement account is exempt. She's the healthy spouse at home, so that's exempt, just like their real estate and their car. $200,000 in countable resources, we've gotta get them down to 108,000. We take $78,000 and we'll see, you see I have there, it's funded into an MQA, and that's just a fancy way of saying Medicaid compliant annuity or a Medicaid qualified annuity. We take that money, we put it into an annuity, it pays out for 12 months back to Janet. The day we write those checks and reduce their resources, Jim became eligible for Medicaid. And that money comes back to Janet in equal monthly payments so that she can use it to continue to pay her bills and sustain herself as her needs change. Jim is in a nursing home setting, his needs are being met. Janet might need that money. So they're able to preserve some wealth so that Janet can take care of herself. There's a cost-benefit analysis to doing that though. Jim's IRA caused a tax consequence. Attorneys cost money. So based on that, we don't have a crystal ball, but if we felt Jim would be in the nursing home for at least three months, then this plan made sense. We don't have a crystal ball. We make the best information with we, what, what we have in that moment. If we had a crystal ball, Jennifer and I would be out of jobs. So we're thankful, but it can make life a little harder planning wise. What about a single person? We know we can protect money fairly easily for a spouse at home. With a single person, uh, the thing we run into most often is 
My child left their job or had to take a leave of absence from their job and come live with me and be my caregiver. And I want them to inherit from me to benefit from that. Well, there's, there's a way we can do that. So we'll talk about Merry Christmas. Anyone who ever hears me give these presentations, I always talk about Merry Christmas. Mary is 87 years old and needs to go into a skilled nursing facility. Her daughter, Noelle, pun intended, has been living with her for several years, and she would like her to realize some financial benefit from Mary's estate when she passes away. So she's got real estate, a checking account. You'll see her income's pretty high, her gross monthly income, so her resource limit's only going to be $2,400, and the nursing home costs like $10,000 a month. There is a rule in the Medicaid guidelines called the caregiver exception. If your child lives with you for at least the two years immediately prior to your entry into a skilled nursing facility, and a doctor says that but for that child living with you, you would have had to be institutionalized sooner, we can transfer the house to Mary's daughter and not cause her a penalty for Medicaid purposes. It has to be your child, who lived with you, and you have to be able to prove that. You can't just be like, yeah, I, I lived with mom, of course. Tax returns, utility bills, your driver's license, you have to be able to prove your address matched. And then you have to get a letter from a doctor that says, yes, but for this, Mary would have entered the nursing home sooner. You can do that and apply for Medicaid, and Mary can transfer ownership of the house to her daughter and not get penalized. So there's an exchange that's being made there more than a gift. But with a single person, that's kind of a neat way we could protect the house so that the daughter could benefit from it. The key takeaways. Remember, everybody needs basic estate planning documents, a last will and testament, a healthcare power of attorney, and a financial power of attorney. Being proactive and doing that now is a key to success for your family in the future. A trust can be a great estate planning tool. It's not for everybody though, but for most people it's worth the conversation to see how it's tailored based on your assets. And it's also never too late to protect your assets. As long as you have that financial power of attorney, your family will be able to help you in the times that you need it most as you age. Do you have any questions for Jennifer and I? Yes, ma'am. I just wondered why you don't mention long-term care insurance. So it's not intentional. It's not by design. We see so little of it anymore. Yes. Um, in my experience, for most people, by the time they're giving consideration to long-term care insurance, they've aged into a place where the premiums just don't make sense. Um, if it's something that you can engage in while you're younger and healthier, it, it can be a fantastic tool. But we just, we rarely see long-term care insurance anymore. It's become fairly rare. I just wanted to say, I went through all of this with the husband in the nursing home, and I met all the protections. My long-term care insurance, it helped as well. So it was a nice benefit. If you have long-term care insurance, it's a great tool because what happens is when you apply for Medicaid, it's like an insurance or a payer source of last resort. So your income is going to go towards your cost of care and they treat your long-term care insurance as part of your income. And then Medicaid can pick up the difference. 
Where I've seen long-term care insurance be the most helpful is clients who've implemented a trust of some kind and then didn't go five years before they needed skilled care. Maybe they only went about four and a half. And the trade-off was there because we had the long-term care insurance to carry us through to that five-year mark so that we could keep that trust intact and protect those assets. So no, you're, you're right. It, it is exceedingly helpful if you have it. Yeah. Any other questions for Jennifer or I? Yes, sir. That's an excellent question. So for those who couldn't hear him, he asked, what category or what does it fall into if you want your child to be able to write checks for you, help you pay your bills? The easiest way to do that is through a power of attorney. So you would name your daughter as your agent on that financial power of attorney. And one of the standard powers or grants of authority is to conduct banking on your behalf. So that's one way to do it. That's the ideal way to do it. You could also name someone if you didn't want them to be your power of attorney over all your finances. Maybe you just name them as a signer on your account, not an owner, just a signer. And then they would also be able to sign checks, but maybe not access any of the other finances. So yeah, good question. Okay. If you find you have questions for us, our contact information's on the board here, but we also have cards at the back of the room. Don't hesitate to give us a call, shoot us an email, or find us milling about. We're happy to answer any questions that you might have. We appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us today, and thank you to Westminster for hosting us so we could share some of the valuable information we want people to know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Successful Aging Podcast. Find us online or follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Lecom is Aging. <laughs>